0: All right, good morning. Good morning. Uh, happy Mother's Day, uh, and we will, I'll pray over you, mothers, uh, in general, in just a moment. We do have, uh, as we continue in the, the Gospel of Mark, walking through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, a pretty tough passage this morning. It's not uh, one that you would typically probably do on Mother's Day. In fact, um, most of us maybe even wonder why we would do it at all. Uh, and that's certainly something in the church today as, at large that we struggle with. This is a, a tough text, uh, but I think that in God's sovereignty, we are at this point in the book of Mark on Mother's Day, and I think there's some beauty for us and, and some encouragement and some challengement, uh, or challenge, uh, challengement, is that a word? Um, there's a challenge, right, um, in, in this gospel truth, and, and so uh, we are going to get to that. Mark chapter 9 starting in verse 42 and going to verse 50. Um, And I'm going to pray over us and I want to pray for our time because of the difficulty of this text and it being Mother's Day uh, for those two things as well. Uh, And I also know that, you know, because of the other things that are taking place in the service, I feel like this text, I know you probably won't agree and that's fine, um, but I feel like this needs like multiple hours of really like weeding through uh, to get to the depths of truth and how it affects our everyday life. Um, but we have a very short amount of time. And so, uh, so I'll try to get to it. But there are some things I think we need foundationally to understand. Uh, and so we'll begin with that in just a moment. But let's pray together. God, thank you so much. Thank you for the time that we have to gather together and to worship you. God, I pray that that would never be lost on us that you would just give us and, and deepen our understanding of, of who you are. And as we study your word today, even in a difficult text with a topic that is has pretty much all but disappeared from our minds and from the church or is taken to uh, an extreme that, that really makes us want to put a wall up and, and just not to wrestle with and understand the beauty of this truth and reality. And, and so, God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see our hearts, to to receive our minds, to understand your your truth this morning. We desperately need it. We need it to be able to understand your love and to understand your mercy and your salvation. And and God, I pray that this would be both uplifting. and, And so I pray that you would give me courage and boldness, but I also pray that you would allow it to come forth in love and in humility, that you would encourage each person here, challenge us, build us up into... The, the truth of, of who we are called to be in you. I pray for those that may not know you as Lord and Savior, that today, through the testimony of those who have said, I've placed my faith in Christ, I want to follow in believers' baptism, from the testimony of the families who say, I want to raise my children up in the way of the Lord, and from the testimony of your living and active word, I pray that you would open hearts, and today, people all across, not only here, but our city, would place their faith in you, the one who is life and joy and peace and meaning. And God, I do lift up the mothers this morning who are here, and I'm so thankful for them. I'm thankful for my mom and the way that she showed you to me. I'm thankful to my wife. Lord, I see every day how how hard parenting is. I experience it. And so I pray that you would give wisdom to each of these mothers that are here. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that you would give them peace, as my daughter says. I pray that they, that they would feel your arms around them, and they would just be overwhelmed with comfort. And Lord, I pray for those that might be struggling on this Mother's Day because they have lost a child or they've lost their mom or different things that go on in our lives that make holidays very difficult, and, and this is no exception. And so, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them. I pray that you would give them peace in this moment. Lord, we know that, that brokenness exists in this world, and, and it is a daily reminder of our need for you and the truth of what we're about to study. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would just allow your word to be living and active to us in this moment. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um, uh, there's something in every single one of us. it's from the very beginning of humanity, every single one of us,, uh, we desire it, and that is that we seek, on some level truth. We want to know what is true and we want to be able to determine how do I base my decisions on something that's foundational and and how do I build on something in my life and and we need truth for that. We need to be able to understand what can I count on and, and what is actually determining what is good and what is determining what is evil or wrong and throughout history, from generation to generation to generation in the past, really until modern times in our culture today, it was believed that this truth, this foundational truth that we build our lives on, that we can set as the lens for all other information that we receive, to be able to comprehend and have understanding and and wrestle with the things that happen in our life based on this truth to determine what is right and what is wrong and the decisions we should make and what we should do and what we should teach and how we should help disciple others. We've built that, that idea of truth as a source that is outside of us in our history from generation to generation whether it be God or whether it be religion or tradition or more modernly, whether it be some scientific understanding, there's some sort of foundational truth outside of me that helps me determine how I should live and how I should act and what I should teach and what I should do, what is right and wrong. But now we've seen a shift in our current culture and our current society And a recent study by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University uh, revealed, and, and this probably won't shock you very much, the second part of what I'm going to say is what really shocked me. This, this was more confirming, um, but this is what they found. 58% of Americans no longer believe in objective truth. That's almost 60% of people who would believe that truth does not come from an external source leaving us today really to just be, define truth and foundation for life and, and, and what we teach and what we proclaim and and how we view right and wrong as just what we feel. It's It's got to come from within. It's got to be something that I'm passionate about, I desire, uh, I perceive with my circumstances the way that they are, that this is what is right for me. And your opinion is no more important than mine, and my opinion is no more important than yours. Um, Everybody's opinion is really the only way that we can find truth. And there is no kind of, we we hear this kind of phrase, there is no absolute truth. Which is a self-defeating term, but I understand why we use it. We feel like we have to determine truth ourselves. Truth is found from within. And this leads, just as a side note, this leads us, by the way, to the demise, really, of civilization. Civilization, community, everything that we really want. If we investigate it, it 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 needs structure. It needs measured morality. It needs authority for us to know how to even love each other. Um, And what that means and and what we're actually striving towards when we use the term justice or injustice or or peace and community and and love, certainly. And and so when we don't have these things, we begin to see um, structure of civilization itself begin to crumble. And we don't have time to dig into that this morning, except to say we need some sort of outside truth to build life on, to build community on. Every desire that we have, this is actually needed. But here's the thing that got me about this study, and and it might surprise you a little bit as well. Maybe it doesn't. Um, But in the same study, they found that evangelicals, and evangelical, the simplest way that I can kind of define that is that evangelicals are Christians who claim to take the Bible seriously. Christians who claim to take the Bible seriously. 46% of evangelicals are Christians who claim to take the Bible seriously, do not believe today in an absolute truth. That is to say, almost half of people who, as Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 15, half of those who honor me with their lips are far from me in their hearts. We're confused about what the gospel is and what truth is and and where we should set that foundational reality to build life and to see everything else through the lens of to determine what is right and and wrong and what is good and moral and what is evil. And and we find ourselves even in the church kind of with this half-heartedness and the, the, the Bible describes it as being lukewarm. And it's one of our greatest challenges that we'll see in this text, is is really taking this time on this Mother's Day to investigate our own hearts and to be honest with ourselves. Because our joy today and our eternity forever depends upon it. But there's this lukewarmness that just kind of encapsulates the church and our culture today. It's one foot in and one foot out. I believe with my confession of faith, but it doesn't actually transform my life, It doesn't affect the way that I live and the decisions that I make. And and really, Christianity today is looking more and more like non-Christianity, just with going to maybe church ever so often on a Sunday. And this reality really haunts me. One of the the scariest verses, and, and I think it puts fear in a good way, and Um, And and all of scripture is found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. And, And this scripture haunts me, not only as an individual, but as a pastor. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven the one who believes the gospel truth, who who understands not only that we have sinned against God and rebelled against him, that we were created to have community with God and and to see everything through his truth and his light and to give glory to him in everything. And in so doing, we were free and we had joy and we had community and we had an identity that we were created to have and community that we were created to feel loved in, completely known and yet completely loved, understood, We were not confused about what we were supposed to do or what would bring joy or what would give life or what would be thrilling for us. We are created with community, with the God who created us and, and able to give glory to him in all things, but rebel desiring to define our own truth, to define our own life, our own salvation, to build our own kingdoms rather than living in his and revealing his and giving glory to him. But God in his love sends his son to live the life that we couldn't live perfectly on our behalf to die and pay the penalty of our rebellion and sin and brokenness that all of us innately feel we need to do something about. It's why we strive. It's why we seek. It's why we want to be better. And, and I could go person by person by person in this room and every single one of us could define something easily about us that we know needs to change, that we desire to change. It's because of our, ultimately, our rebellion against God. But Jesus lived perfectly for us to take our place by dying on the cross and rising from the grave to defeat sin and death. Everything that's defeating us, everything that's holding us down, everything that's keeping us from community with God, Jesus restores in his death and resurrection so that we can place our faith in him and his work alone and by his grace be saved and be transformed and have new life. This is what baptism represents, that when we go under the water, we're dying to self, and we come out of the water, it's rising in Christ, new life in him, through the power of his spirit and his truth and his word, to walk in his freedom in obedience to him. See, we think so often that obedience to anything actually puts shackles around us. It's the opposite of liberty and freedom. And freedom is to be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and define what is true. But actually what we find is that enslaves us. It enslaves us to needing things in the world, using people in relationships, needing everything. It defines our life as being seekers of what we do not have. And this is how we find ourselves in rebellion to God. I'm constantly seeking. I'm constantly pursuing. I'm constantly trying to achieve. I'm constantly looking for what would add to me to help me become what I long to become and help fix what I know needs to be fixed. We're seekers in life. Never able to experience satisfaction and fullness because we always need more. And whatever we get, we have to fear and have anxiety about losing. But when we place our faith in Christ, we have everything that we were created to have in him through his work by his grace. And in that reality, we are able then to begin to live in the way that we were created to live. And this is freedom. To live as we are created to, it changes our passions and our desires and everything that we long for, we can begin to have understanding. And and yeah, I know it's struggle, it's hard and there's ups and downs, but we can pursue freedom, liberty and life in community with God. And this is what Jesus says defines the believer, not just one who says, yeah, Jesus, I need him and he died for me, but one who is actually laying his life down, her life down. And finding new life in Christ transformed from the inside out by his grace to live and walk in the way that he has created us to live and walk. To be not seekers, but to have everything we were created to have in him and now live life to reveal with everything that we have and everything that we are and everything that we do with every relationship who we are in him. Because in him we can be satisfied and I no longer have to fear losing. I don't have to fear not gaining. I don't have to fear anything in all of life because I was not not created to worship creation which cannot satisfy me. But I was created to worship God and in him I can begin to understand what creation is for. And I can give him glory with everything that he has created and begin to enjoy it. Begin to experience life in it. This is what salvation is. That's why this verse haunts me. As not only do we live in a world as we look at this study that's building kingdoms that will just disappoint and just fall and never lead to joy and never lead to salvation, but we live in a world where the church, the big C church, in many ways is defining the word hypocrisy. And all of us feel that can we just be honest for a minute there's 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 nothing that i get more if you're living your life out as a follower of jesus and and in the identity that he has given you in the world outside of this place monday through saturday the thing that you will hear most from people when you try to share the truth of jesus with them that is the foundational truth for what you can actually build life and freedom on then the number one rejection that i get is not theological it's not even scientific It's that I I have seen the church. I've experienced the people who say to be, they are believers. There's a hypocrisy that takes place That's heartbreaking, and I'm not saying, I'm not stepping on any toes in this place. I love Redemption Hill Church. So many of you, I mean, love Jesus, are on fire for Christ and are living out that identity everywhere that you go. There are other churches in our city that are doing the same. So I'm not putting anybody under the bus. I'm just looking at the facts and saying something's wrong. And it haunts me, and it it bugs me, and I, I don't want it for my heart. I don't want it for your heart. Because there is a truth, and if we study and seek truth, it will. And we don't have time to get to all of this, because I'm already taking too long to say this part. But it will lead you to this. It will lead you to God. It will lead you to the work of Christ. And and I want desperately, and I want to plead with us to, to open up and hear this word and really ask ourselves some hard questions this morning. Am I living in the identity that Christ has purchased for me and given me by his grace? Am I living as a revealer or am I living as a seeker? Am I living in the gospel or am I looking more like the world around me that needs the truth desperately? This is what I want us to struggle with. Because there is a foundational truth that allows us to make, begin making sense of every other bit of knowledge. And we cannot look to our hearts. Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all other things. And we know this. We know that what we desire, even in this moment, is possibly not best for us. And we can look back at things that we have desired with all of our hearts and, and swore, if this doesn't happen, I just can't even live and I can't have life and what will I do? And then we can look back and go, I didn't even want the right thing. Our hearts are deceptive and they need to be, our emotions and our feelings, we need to listen to them. They're telling us something, but they need to be guided by truth to actually find meaning in them. This is what we find in God's word. Yes, it is true that my opinion is not more important than yours. Your opinion is not more important than mine, but what matters is God's opinion. He is our creator and sustainer and he is the foundational truth that we long for that begins to make sense of all other things. And so I would submit to each of us this morning that all that we are seeing today in the world around us is completely a theological issue. We are searching for meaning and purpose. We're just doing it in the wrong places. And Jesus says there is a truth There is a truth that is foundational. Now, I know when we talk about truth, that's a hard thing for us to discuss in today's culture. That is not the hard part of this text. And that's why I'm spending so much of our time setting things up because we need to set that part up before we can actually get to the hardest part. Because here's the reality. In a world where we are broken and hurting and searching, when the truth comes in, it can hurt Because what truth does that leads you to liberty and freedom, the truth will set you free. And what it does is cut away all that is killing you to lead into life. And truth in a sinful, broken heart hurts when it comes in. But it's like a hurt from a surgeon, not a butcher. It's something that brings life when we lean in and we struggle with it and seek understanding from it. And so this will hurt Because finding life rips away the things that are leading to death. And the good news is the truth of Jesus does bring healing to us, but it begins to change everything. It's worth everything. It changes our convictions and our desires, the way we view our possessions and relationships, and even our feelings and opinions. It is all encapsulating and transforms us from the inside out. So as we read this text, I need us to understand that. Look with me, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believed in me, and this is Jesus speaking, to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if his salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You may realize as we're reading that, that verses 44 and 46 are missing from your text. And that's because in some of the earlier manuscripts that we have... Some of those manuscripts just add in verse 48 two more times. So verse 44, it is a, 44 is a repeat of 48 and 46 is a repeat of 48. And so they were really emphasizing verse 48. So it doesn't change the meaning of this text at all. But when we look at this and we begin to read this and we see a word beginning to come to the surface, that every single one of us is going to begin to understand why we started off this morning by challenging our thinking about truth, challenging this idea that foundationally we are not to be able to determine our own truth, but there must be a truth that is outside of us that determines all things and only one of those can bring freedom and life that has brought salvation to us, not by what we do, but by what he has done for us. And this is Jesus of scripture. He is the only one that makes this offer. He is the only one that brings salvation that is outside of you. He is the only one that can define truth beyond what you do and what you give to him. But he himself is truth outside of any of his creation. And only in him can we understand creation and find life in it. So we need to understand that because there are a myriad of studies out there that tell us that in our society today, both in the world and in the church, there's very little difference in this. The vast majority of people today believe in a heaven. They do. That we want to believe in a heaven. We want to go to heaven when we die. And we have all sorts of different ways we think we get there. But most of us believe in a heaven. But most of us, the vast majority, do not believe in a hell. We do not believe that there's any way that we could go to a place that that if there was a loving God, he would never send us to these types of places. But this is where I want to speak boldly because I would rather you today appreciate me down the road than like me in this moment. And I would rather stand before God, and this is what haunts me about Matthew 7, 21. I'd rather stand before God and say, "I, I laid your word out and I struggled with it, and it, it sometimes wasn't fun, but, but you gave us the truth, and, and we professed it. But this is a difficult text for us, and this is where I, where I want to have boldness, but I also want to come in humility. Because I know that this is difficult. But this text warns us of something. And, and it doesn't just give us this description of what hell is. It does give us a little bit of one, and we'll see that in just a moment, but but really I want to frame our thinking around why this is something that is even important for us to wrestle with. Because we will tend to think, as I just said, when we talk about hell, it sounds hateful, it sounds very unloving, it sounds unjust, it sounds harsh, and we do immediately, and I've struggled with this as well, we do immediately go to the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? I get that. Like, I I totally understand that way and mode of thinking. I understand it, and it's very difficult. We default to that today because in our culture today, we default to defining our own truth. And so we'll have thoughts like, I could never worship a God who wouldn't do what I would do. Like, it seems like God should agree with me, and where he doesn't, he's got to be the one that's wrong, right? Because emotionally, like, this just seems so right to me. In this moment, given my circumstances and, and my understanding and my knowledge, like, it must be this way. And, and obviously, there's, there's obvious problems with that way of thinking, but it's just the natural way that each of us thinks. And so I sympathize with these ideas, but, but sometimes what I think we do is create false dichotomies, in the way that we form questions, in the way that we think about things. And when we do that, it actually prohibits us from finding the truth that we're actually seeking. And I think there's a false dichotomy when we think of a loving God couldn't do something that, is, that seems hateful to us. And the false dichotomy with that type of question comes in the, with the words love and hate. See, these words are not actually mutually exclusive at all. We, we live out this way every single day, that these two things actually go together. I, I hate something because I love something. And, and this is just the way the world works when there is righteousness and there is evil. There is justice and there is injustice. There is a right and there is a wrong And so the way that this plays out in my everyday life, just in one example, is that I I love my wife, Rachel. And if she was diagnosed with cancer or something else that was killing her, taking her life, then I would hate the thing that is taking away what I love. And, And this begins to make sense in our daily lives. And so here's what we must know with God. God is love himself. He is justice himself. He is goodness and righteousness himself. And so he must hate what is against his very nature, what is against righteousness and goodness. And and by the way, this is why, and we'll really like this part this is why that we can say with confidence God hates murder. God hates sexual abuse. He hates slavery. He hates hypocrisy and lying and stealing and cheating and sinfulness and all injustice. This is always also why we can say with confidence, I can trust that a good God will make everything right as he says he will. So our understanding of this is extremely important. Now, the hard truth about this, as we said, is that we are not righteous. We in and of ourselves have rebelled against God. We have sought our own ways. And the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And and sin deserves death. That's what it leads to. It's a separation from the one who is life and separation from the one who is love and who is good and who is righteous. Life itself. And so each one of us is born into sin by nature and we choose to sin and rebel against God. And in so doing, we have made ourselves enemies of the one who created us to be his children. And for God to be just, sin must lead to death, sin must lead to separation. This is just the truth. If if this is how God is, if he is love and he is justice, and we want to trust him for salvation, we want to trust him for eternity, we want to trust that anything is right and wrong, any of our desires will actually be fulfilled, any of his promises will be made true, then he is both loving and he is just. But... Because of his great love for us, his creation whom he created to know him, even though we did not deserve it. This is what we've been studying in the book of Mark. Jesus came. God came to live as man on our behalf and he demonstrates his love for us. Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling against him, while we were not choosing him, we were not seeking him, he lays down his life so that by his grace, we might have salvation in him, revealing him to be truth to be the God that we desire and long for and we're created for. This is what he has done. And at the cross where he dies for us, this is where his love and his wrath, his justice meet together. And we can have salvation in him. The simplest way that I can lay this out is that because of his love and justice, he made a way for us to place our faith in him and be made new be restored, to follow him, to have salvation in him, to have life in him, because he paid the penalty of our sin. But if we do not place our faith in him, then we will pay the penalty of our own sin, and it is just. It is right and good. So if I know that we, that we don't think and, and talk about this reality, then, then we will not even be able to understand the reality of the love that God has demonstrated, the, the freedom that we're able to live in him with. And, and I get, as soon as I even start talking about this stuff, you just see the guy standing outside the arena with a megaphone. I get it. The pendulum when I grew up and when you probably grew up in a lot of ways, it was hell, fire, and brimstone. And now we've just swung to the other side where hell has disappeared from theology. But Jesus talks about it more than he even talks about heaven. Jesus himself, there's an understanding that we have to understand if we're going to understand his love. We need to understand this reality because without this reality... There is no experience of God's love in our sin, and there is no justice from sin. Miroslav Volf, a theologian in the Vulcans, uh, during war, he was trying to uh, pastor his people who were dying all around him, and he was trying to figure this out, and how do, I, how do I reconcile all of this evil? And this is what he said. The violence that I saw was not fueled by a belief in a God of judgment. The violence I saw was fueled in a lack of belief in a God of judgment. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, that God wouldn't be worthy of worship. The only means to prohibiting all resources to violence by ourselves is to insist that judgment is only uh, legitimate when it comes from God. That practices of peace require a God of divine vengeance. And this hurts because he takes a little bit of a poke at us in the Western world. It takes sitting in your quiet suburban home in the West to believe that peace can come without a God who brings ultimate judgment. The only way for justice to come and to keep people from bitterness is to know there is a just God who will one day make all things right. Because we cannot get justice ourselves. We live in a revolving door of wrongdoing and being wronged. So when it comes to this text, there's this doctrine of hell that we have to reconcile with, we have to wrestle with, and, and this is where I wish, and I know we're already coming to a time where I need to get quickly through the rest of it, but this is why I said I wish that we had just all day to talk about this. It's that important to our eternity is this understanding, but we can only just kind of get the flesh hold, the, the, the flesh level of what God is talking about. And then he goes right into it. I'm just going to list them out for us and talk about them really quickly. Four different warnings. He says to the disciples, this is what discipleship looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And, and, and this is the warning against not laying your life down and surrendering everything to him and being defined by his truth and building his truth, your life, on the foundation of who you are in him that affects everything that you do and transforms all that you are to walk in freedom, not as a seeker, but as a Revealer of the glory of God. These are the four things. The first thing that he says is true discipleship, the kingdom of God, true freedom and living in it it, it, it requires that we love one another. This is how he says it. Do not cause one of these little children to fall into sin. Now, at first glance, we can look at that and go, oh, how appropriate for Mother's Day. Like, it's telling us not to let any kids stray, and certainly it, that includes that. There's, there's a reality of that, that we should, as Charles said earlier, we should train up our kids, and it is the number one reason that we, God has graced us with children, and this is what we should desire for our kids more than anything else, more than where they go to college, or what they do, or who they marry. All of those things, the foundational truth that they need to understand is, Jesus is everything, and that's what they need to see in your life. It's what they need to see about your calendars and everything that you do. Jesus is the center of all that we are. So it certainly includes children, but as Clint said last week, it's more talking about the the understanding of how a little child would be seen in the first century. That they're a nobody with nothing. They They offer nothing. And Jesus is saying, this is what is required for salvation. You come to God as a nobody who has nothing to offer. Clint last week used the illustration of the rich young ruler who tried to come to God because of all of his morality and all of his good deeds and his ability to live up to the law. And Jesus says to him, you're close, but you need to lay all that down. Because the only way to have salvation is to understand that it's not about what you do and what you achieve or what you have not done or what you have not achieved. It's based on what he has achieved on your behalf. It's by his grace and his grace alone that you have salvation. We are nobodies with nothing to bring who surrender our lives to Jesus and find the life we were created to have in him and him alone, or we are not his followers. See, this is the the challenge that Jesus is laying down. You are all in or you are not in. You surrender everything or you have surrendered nothing. There is no lukewarmness. There is no half-heartedness. And so this is what he says, that we are to love one another. That if we are followers of Christ, it will be visible in the way that we lift one another up, in the way that we desire people to live in the freedom that God has called them to. So we didn't understand that the gospel is the great leveler of the playing field and so therefore I I do not think that I'm higher than anybody because of what I know theologically or that anyone is beneath me or that I've accomplished something that nobody else has accomplished and and therefore there's these levels of self-righteousness that should be known in the church body. No, all of that is wiped out. We are nobodies with nothing and we come to Jesus and he gives us everything. And then in him, our greatest passion and desire is to love one another in truth and build them up in the reality of who they are in Christ so that they might walk in the freedom that God has called them to. And so our desire is not to cause anyone to sin or to lead them away, but to point them to Jesus in everything we do, with everything that we have, with everyone around us, pointing them to Jesus, pointing them to Jesus. Everything is about revealing the glory of God. He tells the disciples, if you are a follower of Christ, you will love one another. There's this theology of oneness all throughout scripture. We see it in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, Galatians two twenty. If we had more time, I'd read them to you. John 13, 35, John chapter 17, which we talk about constantly here at Redemption Hill Church. That we are one with God by placing our faith in him, he makes us one with him. He gives us the power of the spirit. And then he calls us his bride. He calls us his body. He he sends us on mission together. In John 17, he says, the world will know you by your love for one another. And they will know that I am the Messiah by the way that you love each other. This is what he calls us to, a genuine love. A love that's patient and kind and, and, and doesn't boast. It's not rude or arrogant or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in doing what is right. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It never ends. Is all Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 love is. Here's what love is. It's not contractual. See, if I know who I am in Christ and I know that he has given me everything that I need to live for his glory in all things and and that I can begin to see the world through the truth that is foundational for my life and I no longer need creation to make me whole, but I can reveal through creation that I am made whole in Christ, then it begins to allow me to stop using people for what I do not have and calling it love and allows me to begin to actually love people because of the way that I've been loved by Christ. It transforms and flips upside down the way that we relate to each other. It's not contractual, it's covenantal. I love you based on who I am. This is what Jesus has done for us, not based on what you do for me. And though the, I, I understand the struggles there in our walks with God and that we will have to ask for a whole lot of forgiveness and we will have to show a whole lot of grace and we'll have to fight a whole lot of bitterness. But this is what the body of Christ looks like. It loves one another towards the truth of Christ. How does that work? Anglican theologian William Van Stone, he said this in his book, Love Endeavors, Love's Expense. And he writes this beautiful chapter, um, and this is one of the coolest words ever. He calls it the phenomenology of love. And here's what he says. All human beings, even people who from childhood were deprived of love, know the difference between false and true love. What is counterfeit and what is authentic love? And in counterfeit love, the aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. It's contractual and it's not vulnerable. You will have to hide things about you to feel loved, which is counterfeit. But genuine love, which we all innately desire and believe to be attainable and pursue with all of our lives because we were created in the image of God for his love and to be known in him. It's demonstrated by spending yourself for happiness, the happiness of another, because your joy is their joy. Your affection is unconditional and it is radically vulnerable. The real issue is we want genuine love, but none of us is fully capable of giving it, and we are not fully capable of trusting that anyone is giving it to us because of our brokenness. All our love is somewhat fake. We know this, yet we desperately need a real love, as real as possible. And so what we do is we make it feel as genuine as we can by investing our love in things that we believe will give us a good return, but it's not true. But what we can't give away enough of or receive enough of and we are starving for is genuine love. We need someone to get the ball rolling. This is the solution, love that loves us because of who they are and not who we are, what we have done. And, And that kind of love would assure us of value and fill us in a way that we cannot turn away from and that we would need to reveal in everything that we do. And the only one that that is offered through in all of history is Jesus. He alone understands love outside of another. Only he can reveal it, only he can give it, and we can only in him receive it and begin to learn through his power to reveal it. Are we resting in that kind of love? Is this what defines us? Sorry, we're in a 100-year-old building. and it gets hot under the lights. Is this what defines us? Is this the kind of love that we're experiencing revealing? Is there some wrestling with love that we need to do with God and our understanding of our identity that we need to do with him today? Really quickly, let me look at the the other three that he mentions in this. Love was definitely the longest one. But the second one that he says is in verses 43 to 47. He says that gospel uh, kingdom understanding and discipleship, it, it requires a radical desire for purity. And he uses this symbolic language. If something causes you to sin, cut it off. Obviously, he's not telling us that we'll be more righteous and and better people if we cut off things of our body. Right? The heart is where the problem actually is. Origin of Alexander actually tried this. He took it very literally. And he began to cut body parts off and emasculate himself, hoping that it would deal with his lust. But guess what happened? His heart was still lustful. You can do anything you desire to do from the outside in, but who you are determines what you do. And from your heart will determine your identity. And Christ alone transforms the heart. And it begins to transform how we live and what we do and our passions and what we put on display and how we live. And so what Jesus is saying here is anything physical is worth laying down or giving up some of and, and, and giving him glory through. If it's not something that you need to give up, anything physical is worth giving, laying it all down for the sake of the kingdom. If it means kingdom and Jesus or everything on this world, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? This is what Jesus is saying. That This is why he uses eyes and hands and his feet. He's saying everything you see, everything you do, every, where you go, the, the craving that you have at your soul level is for Jesus, not the things you see, not the things that you have, not the things you possess, not the places you can go. It's all about him. Human flourishing is tied up in him. And this is not the gospel of sin management, as Dallas Willard would call it. This is us leaning into the pleasure that we were created to have. But again, the truth will cut away the things that are killing us. And Jesus says, it is worth everything. Lay it all down for the sake of his glory. Anything you do, give him glory through it. This is where it comes in that we cannot be lukewarm. We cannot be half-hearted. We cannot say that we believe in Jesus and Him not transform our lives. That is not following Christ. That is not. Listen to me, it's not salvation. Salvation transforms our hearts, it transforms our lives. Jesus says we will be known for our love, the transforming power of living to reveal and not to seek. And that is how the world will know. That is how we will grow together in community through transformation. And we cannot just speak with our mouths what we do not believe in our hearts that is not transforming our lives. This is the warning that Jesus gives. Wholeheartedness leads to death. The Dutch priest Henry Newman said this, I weep for the half-hearted men that I see around me. Our calendars are just so full, we can't even follow God. Satan doesn't even need to tempt us with great sin. We don't have the time to commit them. Half-hearted news is enough to hold a man in hell. Women may keep their vows, but their dreams will die married to a half-hearted man. Children will not, will stop running to the door for a half-hearted man. Sinners will turn from the gospel of a half-hearted man. History will bury in obscurity the lives of half-hearted men. They have full schedules pursuing the world and no time for God and fulfillment. A man cannot thrive with a half-heart. The only true thriving and thrill of life, he says, is wholehearted devotion to Jesus. This is what Jesus says. This is what he lays out. And the alternative is that we live separated from him. And this is what he describes. And in the final two in verses 49 and 50, he says, thirdly, everyone shall, will be salted with fire. And what he's reverting back to, the disciples would understand in Leviticus, we see the different types of offerings. He's describing a grain offering here that you would actually put salt on to preserve it and it symboled the preservation of God for his people until Christ comes, which now what Jesus is saying is we are the preservation of his truth until he returns and makes all things new. The follower of me, the disciple who knows me, they will lay their life down to reveal truth, to be the salt of the earth. Deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. Or what Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is what Jesus is saying to the disciples, that we are to be salt in the earth, that we are to spur people on to love and good deeds and to know Jesus, that we are to perform justice as only his kingdom can perform justice because we alone stand on the truth that is foundational above all other things. And this is a difficulty for me and, and I'll, I'll wrap up with saying this, but, but some people that I'm around, listen to me, that are very wealthy, they cause me or lead me to desire to be more generous, but others I've been around that are very wealthy, I leave them and all I want is more wealth. There are some that that I'm around and they lead me to love people in greater ways and and to seek Christ in deeper ways and and then some just make me want to be proud of what I can accomplish and what I can do. Some lead me into desiring a deeper knowledge of God and to read and study but then some a deeper knowledge of just fitting into culture. Some show me a value of God's family and community. Some show me that any excuse is good enough to lay anything down that Jesus calls us to. Some lead me to believe that, that I want to be the best and, and sacrifice the most that I possibly can for the glory of God. And, and some would lead me to believe that no sacrifice is worthy, but we should build and seek the life that we long for. And on and on I could go. Where are we as followers of Christ Are we revealing the goodness of his glory? Or are people walking away from us wanting more of the world? Are we wholehearted in Christ or are we half-hearted? I believe, but it doesn't transform. I believe, but I'm going to reveal to you that your kingdom is better than his. This is what he's calling us to. And then he finally says, discipleship requires obedience. We all live in obedience to something. The real question is, does what we live in obedience to, what we worship for value and life, does it shackle us and enslave us or does it lead us to freedom? Jesus is the only truth that's outside of ourselves and the things that we do and he is the only one that sets us free from the shackles of needing things, of anxiety and fear and allows us to walk in truth. What do you need to lay down today to begin to walk in him and him alone? I want us in the next few minutes as we close our service together in worship to wrestle with this truth. There is one truth that leads to a genuine love, a passionate purity, a radical revealing of the gospel, and a desire to walk in the freedom and obedience to God. Does this describe who we are?